Auto Parent Podcast with my mom. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Auto Parent Podcast, episode 34, which we're calling Enneagram and Parenting. I was trying to think of a good pun, like Enneagram. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't know how, I, it doesn't matter how I try. Like it doesn't work. Enneagramming? No. Enneagram and Parenting. And I'm your host, Pastor Casey Van Atta Casebeer, and y'all know me. So we're going to get to our special guest for this episode, which you can already see, and I'm so excited about it. First, I want to share with you one of her Instagram posts that it really spoke to me, and it sort of invited me to reach out to her to get her on the podcast. And it's such an amazing gift that she's here. So she says in this Instagram post, yesterday, I apologize for being in this woman's way while I was trying to get her child situated. She said, don't apologize at all. You're a new mom. And she says, I haven't stopped thinking about that comment. I think our society lets us be, quote, new moms, unquote, for a month or two. And then we have to move on, go back to work or don't become an expert in every single thing about parenting, have the perfect nursery, lose all of the baby weight, but we're still new moms. Give new moms the time they deserve. Everyone is just trying to figure it out. Our special guest is Ashton Whitmoyer-Ober, and she is a writer, public speaker, community psychologist, certified Enneagram coach, and advocate for the underdog. She is a part-time professor and has her own Enneagram and life coaching business, Enneagram Ashton. She is the author of Enneagram for Relationships and The Two of Us, a three-year couples journal, which you can see on the shelf behind her. Um, And she's a mom. Welcome to the podcast. It is so good to see you, and I'm so thankful that you're doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I was excited you reached out. All right. So we're going to get right into it because this is just how we do things around here on the Auto Parent Podcast. (laughs) I'm going to ask you our special guest questions. So just right off the top, like the easiest way to get to know somebody is to find out what their biggest pet peeve is. So what, Ashton, is your biggest pet peeve? You know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, wow, I have so many pet peeves. And I don't think I knew how many pet peeves I had until I was thinking about it. I am a big rule follower, so it is a pet peeve of mine when people like cut in line or like don't wait their turn. But I would have to say that I live in Amish country, and so horse and buggies on the road is a big pet peeve. They slow everything down. I appreciate them for what they are, but I just like to get places. So maybe slow drivers, and then we can like throw in some buggies with that because they're slow drivers. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they are slow drivers indeed. Um, yeah. I also am a rule follower. Um, and this is funny that you mentioned this. So we're just going to go ahead and like get it out of the way. I'm a one on the Enneagram. Okay. And cool. I actually, <laughs> I actually yesterday was in a little bit of a fender bender. And I didn't know if I was going to talk about this, but I think I will just because you brought this up. <laughs> about being on the road um, and being a rule follower. So there was this Uber driver that was um, sort of like had pulled off to like pick somebody up and they're like the butt of their vehicle was in the lane that I was in. Um, And, and there was a car in front of me that wound up being able to get over. But when I looked up, to get over, like there was a car over here in this lane. So I couldn't get over. So I like sideswiped this Uber driver whose butt was in my lane. (laughs) And this is where that's not really the irritating part, but the pet peeve comes in with like the rule following thing. So (laughs) this 
this Uber driver that I hit kept asking me to take a photo of my driver's license. And I was like, listen, <laughs> ma'am, like in no way, shape or form am I going to give you a photocopy of my driver's license? Like, right. <laughs> am I like going to let you steal my identity? Like this is not happening. Yeah. Um, and it was so, it just like over and over and over again. And like the police showed up and like, they, they don't, you know, file a case or whatever, unless there's bodily injury. And so they were like, we can't hold her here. Like, we don't know what you want from us, but she's not giving you a copy of her license. And I called my partner who is a six on the Enneagram. And he was like, Oh "Oh my God, like I would have panicked and I would have just given her everything. Like if she had asked me for my social security number, I would have given her that. Yeah. Yeah, my partner's also a six, so I can relate to that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so biggest pet peeve, (laughs) slow drivers. Also, um, lots of driving situations, apparently. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Um, Okay, so another question that we like to ask, and I always like to preface it by saying it does not have to be a good story. In fact, that's mostly what makes it funny, is remembering a time that you've laughed really, really hard, or perhaps if you can remember the hardest time that you've ever laughed. I feel like this is this was such a hard question because like I laugh a lot. Like laughing comes naturally to me. And so I feel like that's hard to um you know, think about what the the absolute hardest time that I've laughed is. And I feel like it's more like situational for me. You know, like when I'm with my I'm the youngest of four siblings, so when we're all together with our families now like we just laugh the whole time or when I'm with my college friends like all we do is laugh I can think about times you know growing up when I feel like every time as a as a little girl and my mom would go to the bathroom with me like every time there was some sort of situation that would have us like cracking up and so I feel like there I don't have like a specific story tied to laughing the hardest because I can think of so many times that I just have laughed. I know that's not the answer you want or you're looking for. (laughs) Well, it's, it's good, right? Because there, there are people who sort of have a disposition toward humor or laughter, just, just the way that they are in the world, which is a beautiful thing. I can Mm -hmm. get into bitches and into like, like I cry when I laugh quite frequently. Oh yeah, me Um, too. (laughs) really quickly just yesterday Um, my mom yeah just yesterday my mom she's been like cleaning out her house for what seems like what feels like months and finding memories and every time she comes over here she brings over like a pile of things that I do not want right but she's (laughs) passing on and she was showing me this like self-portrait that I drew of myself obviously self-portrait and it was horrible okay like I was probably in like fourth grade the nostrils were like didn't even look like a nose at all and so I literally was like we were looking at like me what I look like versus this self-portrait and just like we both were in tears laughing at how I thought that this looked like me because I'm going to show it on my Instagram later because I know she brought it over today and it's it's remarkable how not like me it looks. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. 
I remember writing a story. This this will tell you about my childhood a little bit. Um, I remember writing <laughs> like my first story. I think I was maybe like four or five years old. And the story was called The Bear That Nobody Wadded, W-A-T-T-E-D. It was supposed to be wanted, which is like yeah. sad and forlorn that anyway. so sad. Yeah. The bear that the nobody bear that wanted. Nobody that is wanted. so depressing. Isn't that awful? Um, yeah. But anyway, that, I saw it. We moved not that long ago and I saw it, you know, as I was like thumbing through some stuff and I was like, oh my gosh. And I looked at some of the illustrations and I was like, ooh, this is terrifying. And we had a good laugh about it. Too, oh, so. Yeah. <laughs> I remember finding my creative writing journal from like my creative writing class in high school and and like all of the poems were like about the hot guy that sat in front of me in class. And every now and then if I need a good laugh, you know, my friends and I will just pull it out and be like, what is that guy up to today? Did he know that Ashton was creepily writing about him from sitting behind him? Right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so funny. I the amount of bad poetry I have sitting in yes. in folders somewhere is hilarious. It's hilarious. Yes. Okay, well, now it's time to do a segment that we love around here on the podcast called Parenting Fails, Confessions and Wins. We'll start first with Parenting Fails. I'll just come out of the gate with one that happened really recently. And you know what? I'm not I'm not mad at it. So <laughs> we have a pool in our apartment complex and the kids obviously like love to go to the pool. And so we go up there and we'll spend hours and hours. And so there's there's a couple fails happening. Number one, I am terrible at reapplying sunscreen. Like I feel like it's a myth, even though it's not. I know it's real. I know I should be doing it. I feel like a terrible mom. But also it's like impossible. What are you going to do? Like spray sunscreen onto a slippery wet kid who's like, it, who's running all over, like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so I didn't, I did not reapply sunscreen. And my youngest is like, I have never, he's so tan, like he's so tan, but his little bitty nose was burned and started oh, to peel. No. And I was like, oh, terrible mom. And then <laughs> I, <laughs> that same day, the kids, like we had been at the pool for like two and a half hours and they both get out and they're like, we're hungry. Like we're so hungry. And I realized that I had brought like no snacks, like no snacks at the pool. Oh, no. And swimming makes kids hungry. And I just, I felt horrible. I was like, well, I don't have any food. So y'all can keep swimming or we can leave, but there's no in between. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> swimming, and then they had a big dinner and everything worked out, but I felt horrible on both counts. Yeah. So there, there's a couple of fails for you. What do you have? So a lot because my baby is seven and a half months old and we're first time, like I'm a first time mom and I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. So um, a lot of fails have happened. Um, like so many that I could probably tell you like 25 stories right now. But the one that <laughs> sticks out to me is, um, do you know what Duck Donuts is? No, I don't. Tell me. Duck Donuts is this donut shop. It's amazing. I don't even know how to explain it. It like melts in your mouth and they specialize in like different donut toppings. So like you can, it's almost like a create your own donut where you can do like vanilla icing with um, Oreo crumbles and then like a glaze on top or something like that. Anyways, so on Father's Day, which also happened to be my husband's birthday, 
he was like, I want duck donuts. And we're like, why would we ever try to go somewhere on Father's Day? Like, like first mistake. But I was like, well, I just fed her and, you know, we'll be fine just to run over there. And we ended up waiting so long for these freaking donuts. I was like, you better enjoy every single like bite of this donut for all of eternity because I didn't bring a bottle. I didn't bring diapers. Like I didn't bring anything. And turns out we were there for hours trying to get these donuts (laughs) that I had to like run to the nearest Walmart to be like, let me get something to nourish our daughter here. So same day, same day, we go to this like, um, beer garden fest for his birthday forgot diapers again like what <laughs> like literally same day so i've done that parenting. countless times countless times <laughs> and more so too as they get older because we're still potty training our our second one he's three and just oh relentless so we'll go somewhere not thinking about it and not bring anything with us. And then he'll have an accident. And I'm like, well, what are we, I mean, what are we going to do? So we like mm-hmm. have to pull off and stop at like Walmart or some other like box store yep. and support that nonsense to buy just a pair of shorts. <laughs> so that my kids right. not walking yeah. around in like accident clothes. But I, I, I literally was like, I don't that. even go to Walmart. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I don't even go to Walmart, but I guess I'm going to Walmart today. Exactly. I guess we're going to Walmart. Yeah. I I remember doing that really early on, actually, with my first child, Cash, who is six now. We were just going to go like, you know, it's it's always like good intention. We're just going to go right up the road. Mm-hmm. No big deal. I was like, you know, not a problem. And, you know, we talk about everything on the podcast. So I'm just going to lay it out. Like I, had, I struggled breastfeeding really hardcore, but it was something that I was still trying to do. Um, and I was pumping a lot. So I was feeding him breast milk, but it was hard for him to actually latch and to do all of that. And so, um, it was like this really sort of visceral, like animalistic moment where I had no food for my child. And I was like, well, we're just going to like, I'm going to try to feed you with my body right now. (laughs) And we're going to try to do this thing. (laughs) And it was enough, you know, it was enough to hold him over until we could get home. But it, it, it really, I, that's so funny. I don't think I've told that story. I know I haven't told it on the podcast and I haven't thought about it in a really long time. But it is funny how that instinct sort of kicks in where you're like, we're just, we, we got to do it, you know, in, in the midst of yeah. perhaps making a choice, whether it's good or bad, just making a choice yeah. and realizing that, oh, we found ourselves here. And then just letting that instinct take over. Yep. Yeah, All right, so crazy. let's do <laughs> it is. Let's do some parenting confessions. People oftentimes ask what's the difference between a fail and a confession and I often just say that confessions are things that we hide from our kids or lie to our kids about, which as they get older is easier to do. <laughs> and so my confession is real simple and that's that our 6-year-old has a Nintendo Switch. And the other day I noticed that he, I mean, it's, it belongs to the family, but he's the one who like plays it the most. And the other day I realized that he was kind of on it a little bit more than I wanted him to be. And we usually don't have a problem with screen time with him because our kids are very active. They have a nanny who like takes them and they do all kinds of things. So he's usually not super into screen time, but I did notice that he had been on his switch a lot lately. So I just took it and hid it from him. And then I didn't tell him (laughs) and he hasn't asked for it. 
So I feel like oh, it's kind of sign. a win. Yeah, and a confession. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one day he's going to be like, oh, yeah, didn't I have a Nintendo Switch somewhere and like go looking for it? But I <laughs> yeah. just hid it from him and he hasn't noticed. So it's, you know, it's working out so far. That's amazing. So for me, you know, like I don't, she's she's so young. It's like, what am I really doing? But I guess I do hide her peanut butter puffs from her. Like I can't give them to her until she eats other things or else that's all she wants. So I'll like sneakily carry the bag over and hide it until, (laughs) until I, she's eaten, you know, what I think is acceptable and then I can bring out the puffs. But that's, I mean, she's so young. It's like, I don't really, you know, keep a lot of stuff from her because there's not really much to keep. (laughs) Yeah, that is true though. Um, I know the puffs were a big thing in our household too. So we would have to do the same thing, sort of covert. Or even if we were at the store, like I remember we'd have to like sneak them in behind the basket or like, you know, keep them away so that they couldn't see them and want to open them right then. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. All right. So this is the best part. This is parenting wins. I, my parenting win is a survival win today. <laughs> so my, my nanny has been unavailable for the first three days of this week. So I have, I have survived without childcare for the last three days. I have managed to get a little bit done, not as much done as I'd want to get done, but work yeah. and the kids and survive and today I am here with you and it's beautiful and my kids are nowhere to be found and I can take a deep breath knowing that <laughs> yeah I'm not with me <laughs> are you getting the picture I'm alone and, and, yeah. <laughs> and I did yeah. it so that's my win congrats that's my win. yeah thank you I feel like my win I you know you had told people that I'm a part-time professor and so I had my baby December 1st, and then uh, the semester started February 1st. So I went back to work after eight weeks, and I honestly like don't know how I survived the spring semester. Um, I was an exclusive pumper, and so I would um, have to pump all the time, pretty much, and you know, would have to like remember all the pump parts and then be on campus multiple days a week. And, and it was, um, the most, probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. But when I, you know, submitted my final grades in May, I was like, holy crap, I cannot believe I did it. And I honestly like was really proud of myself for going back to work so early and doing it and getting it done, but I would 10 out of 10 not recommend going back that early. So (laughs) never again am I doing that. And if you're listening and you are able to take time off, I would suggest doing it. But know that you can make it work if you can't. Yeah, I relate to that so much. I just want to say too, like, exclusively pumping is so hard. Like as somebody who exclusively pumped for two kids and did so for as long as I could, like all the things that you're saying about like the, the stuff that's required, like there's bags, there's storage, there's like specific type of gear and bras and like all of that is so intense and, Mm -hmm. and managing to do that multiple times a day, every day. So consistently, sometimes, I don't know if this was your experience, but sometimes just like in a back corner somewhere is a huge feat. Totally. 
Yeah. And I wouldn't even have time to make it back to my office in between classes. So I would go into, I'd have to use a single stall bathroom and, you know, some people are gross. Some people are gross. <laughs> That's all I'll say. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It also does make me, it, it reminds me that like, there are some organizations and institutions that need to be better about providing space for, yeah. for birthing persons and parents to be able to do this kind of important stuff. So yeah, yeah. that's something that I'm thinking about. I also, just to relate to you a little bit more, my second child was born December 22nd. I think that's his birthday. <laughs> that's his birthday, <laughs> December 22nd. And I was, I don't know, for some reason, decided to have a child in the middle of getting a master's degree. And so had him, I was in seminary at Duke. My classes started the first week of January. So I was two weeks out from oh. having a baby. And I remember having a conversation with like, you know, trusted partners and like family and I was like, can I do this? Should I do this? And I was a, I was a college athlete. I played basketball. Um, and actually, you know what? This is kind of fitting thinking about Simone Biles and her amazing and wonderful witness to what mental health means mm-hmm. and her ability to, to stand up and say, you know, no more. But I had the kind of mindset that a lot of these athletes have, which is to just kind of push through, push through, push through, push through. And so everything that you were saying about like not recommending (laughs) doing this, I feel the same way. And yet yet I did, you know, I pushed through, I did it. I felt proud. There are moments where I think, oh, I can't believe I did that. And also Mm -hmm. like my mental health was not solid. I wasn't able to sort of bond and spend enough time with him in the way that I felt like I needed to. There were all kinds of things that I sacrificed Mm -hmm. for that moment. So yeah, I relate to you hard in that regard. Yeah, no, I I agree. I also had a C-section, so it was like a a whole other level of pushing myself too much, you know, and not, because I think we are, I mean, similarly, since we are recording this in the midst of the Olympics, similarly, we're taught to just keep going despite hardship. Right. And I think it's so important that we allow ourselves to not just heal physically, but emotionally, spiritually, you know, all of those things that are just so important for us to live healthy lives. Yeah. Yeah. This is so important. This is so important. And I'm glad it's something that we are able to sort of discuss and bring to light today. And again, just want to reiterate, like, so grateful for the witness of Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and some of the the women of color who have, you know, led us uh, and said, we're not here for your entertainment. It's a, it's a beautiful and amazing witness that, you know, we shouldn't have to rely on those kinds of people to teach us. um, But I'm thankful that they are there to teach us and that we're willing to listen. So, and now that, you know, we've gotten real already, but (laughs) um, yeah, (laughs) this was our segment called parenting fails, confessions and wins. I always want to remind our listeners that you can submit your own fails, confessions and wins to us via voice memo. We'd love to hear your voice or you can type it out to us on Instagram or Twitter at auto parent. And now it's time to do a little something different. Well, 
we have an Enneagram expert among us, and I'm so excited to welcome Enneagram Ashton uh, to the podcast. And I just want to talk a little bit about the Enneagram, if you can give us, uh, we've referenced it quite often on the podcast. Most of the time, people okay. either know what I'm talking about or their eyes are glazing over. So if you can give us just a short little, this is what the Enneagram is, this is how it's an important tool. Um, and then I thought we could talk a little bit about like our Enneagram numbers and and go from there. So yeah. So the Enneagram is an ancient typing system. It was created about two to 4,000 years ago. So it's very old. It did not come to the United States until around the 1960s. And then um, the first books about them weren't written in English until uh, around the 1980s. And so, you know, it's a fairly new system to the United States, but it's been around for a long time. And it pretty much is, um, you know, nine different points or nine different ways of viewing the world is like is how I like to explain it, where we all view things differently and these are the ways that we're viewing them. It's different from other typing systems like Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders or Love Languages where those kind of explain some of our behaviors. So maybe we are extroverted or introverted. We, you know, and enjoy um, a healthy debate or we kind of, you know, hide in the corner. Those are all behavior traits where the Enneagram comes in and talks about the motivations behind our behaviors, the why and the how of what we do things. And so maybe we are extroverted or introverted, but the Enneagram and our Enneagram type is going to explain why or explain those motivations behind those things. So there are nine types, but like I said, there aren't just nine different types of people in the world. So I think people, you know, get caught up in like, I don't want to be put in a box, but I always encourage people that the Enneagram is actually trying to remove you from the box that other people have put you in. And it can allow you to really understand uh, not just yourself, but other people. And maybe there are behaviors of others that stress you out or annoy you or drive you crazy. Um, and understanding, you know, their motivations for acting that way can be really beneficial to strengthening relationships. Yeah, what, what you say is so important. Actually, the um, so I came to know the Enneagram through the work of Richard Rohr mm -hmm. and as a sort of a spiritual tool. And I've realized that that what you're saying about how it informs being in relationship with other human beings in a mm -hmm. redemptive and full way is so true. It's so true. And we use it a lot in our office as coworkers and how we can sort of best be in uh, peer and colleague relationships with one another. It also has deeply, deeply impacted my marital relationship. And there's so much involved in it, right? So there's, there's types and there's wings and there's triads. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about sort of what those things are and how they impact what your type is? Yeah, so your main Enneagram type is with you from a very young age. Um, most Enneagram scholars will say that you are born with your type. And so it's more of a um, nature versus nurture situation. Whereas, you know, some of the other personality types can change if um, 
you know, based on life experiences, your Enneagram type will not change. So you have your type, which like I said, there are nine types. And then you have your wing, which is on either side of your main type. And so what's cool about the wing is you oftentimes take on some of those traits of the types that are next to your main type. A common misconception is that your wing is just your second highest score. And that's not the case unless it is on either side of your main type. So um, I'll go through all nine types, but uh, a like common uh, mistake is somebody who says, you know, like I'm a two wing nine and that's not possible because mm-hmm. your wing has to be on either side. So the top does start with nine and then it goes around nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine being the peacemaker. And when I go out of order, it bothers the ones, but to me it is order because I started (laughs) at the top and that's what I do. So nine is the peacemaker. They're um, motivated by a need to, you know, maintain the peace, maintain a peaceful environment. And then their biggest fear is typically conflict or being separated in some way, shape or form. One is the reformer. They um, are motivated by a desire to be seen as a good person, to be moral, ethical. It's why they're big rule followers. And then their biggest fear is to be seen as a bad person or to be evil or wrong. They're very focused on being right or doing the right thing. Uh, Twos are the helper. They're motivated by a need to feel loved and wanted. They then fear not being loved, not being wanted, and then not being appreciated for the things that they do. Three is the achiever. They are motivated by a need to um, be valued or respected, to be competent. And then they fear typically failure, so they don't like to fail. Um, But then they also fear not being seen as competent or capable. Uh, Fours, they are the individualist. They typically desire um, significance, like creating significance, creating meaning. They also um, desire authenticity and being unique. And then their biggest fear is really like something's wrong with them, that they're defective in some way, um, that they are, you know, not unique or, or that they are just like everybody else. Five is the investigator. I also refer to them sometimes as a walking Google search engine because they typically <laughs> uh, know a lot of things. So because of that, their biggest desire is to be knowledgeable. They want to know the things and they want other people to know that they know the things. So they like to share that knowledge too. And then their biggest fear is, um, really like being invaded on. So having like their privacy invaded on or, um, you know, being exhausted by other people. Six is the loyalist. Um, their biggest desire is to have security, guidance, um, to feel safe, things like that. And then their biggest fear is, is typically fear itself. So sixes do have that relationship with fear and anxiety. Um, but then they also fear, you know, not having that guidance or security from other people. And then sevens, they are, um, the optimist or the enthusiast. 
And their biggest desire is to, they do want to have fun, but they're mostly seeking contentment. So they want to Mm -hmm. be content in everything they do. They're often known for, you know, wanting to try new things, new experiences. And so that's because they're looking for contentment. And then they do have FOMO, so they do fear missing out on things, but mostly they fear being trapped in emotional pain. And so oftentimes they will bury any sort of pain or negativity, cover it up and pretend like they're not actually feeling that. Mm. And then eights are the challenger and their biggest desire is to protect themselves and others so they do want to protect themselves they love to fight for the underdog so they love to protect other people as well and then their biggest fear is being seen as weak or powerless or controlled in some way so like i said those are the nine types and then your wings can be on either side so you will your motivation will remain in your main type. So for example, I'm a two. My motivation will always lie in that need to feel loved and wanted, but I oftentimes take on the traits of a one being a rule follower and a three being driven and motivated. So yeah, that's how the system works. Yeah. So obviously you can hear there's a lot here. Um, And if this is your first brush with the Enneagram, I'm so glad that Ashton is the one to give you this sort of intro, but I hope also that you will continue to, to look into the work that she does and, and more of, of the deep parts of the Enneagram as well. So we mentioned I'm an Enneagram one. I've never been able to figure out my wing ever. I don't know what it is, but I am curious if we could maybe use me as a case study, just since I'm here yeah. to talk a little bit, <laughs> to talk a little bit about the movement in, um, in health and, or however you say it in, in stress and health or that, as well as sort of the one being a part of the gut triad. Yeah. So I love talking about the triads. I think it's so interesting. So the Enneagram is also split up into three triads, the gut triad, the heart triad, and then the head. So it really just means that those in your same triad have similar characteristics to you. So the 891, they are in the gut triad and meaning they receive information through their gut and then they instinctively respond to things. So they typically rely on that gut instinct to make decisions. Uh, They also all have this shared characteristics characteristic of wanting justice. So they're very justice oriented. And then they all also have some sort of relationship with anger. So for eights, it's typically like a natural emotional expression. They don't really think much about it. For nines, they experience it, but they bury it. And it almost comes out as like being passive aggressive. And then for ones, they'll say, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated or I'm annoyed. (laughs) Right. Did I hit that on the head? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Twos, threes, fours are in the heart triad. So they receive information through their heart and then they feel about things typically before they respond or make decisions. They all um, want to create significance or meaning in some sort of way. And then they all have this relationship with shame. So twos is typically around, am I doing enough for other people? threes, it's am I like achieving enough? And then fours, it's just am I enough in general? 
And then five, six, seven, they're in the head triad. So they receive information through their head and then they think about things before responding. I know your partner is a six, so is mine. And so sometimes we do not get into the action step because we're stuck in our heads. And I just sometimes feel like we wouldn't do anything if it weren't for me being like, let's just do it. So yeah, they spend a lot of time in their heads. If you're listening, trying to figure out your type and you're like, oh yeah, I I overthink and process everything. You're in this five, six, seven realm. They all have a, you know, desire to think things through and process things. And then they have this relationship with anxiety. So for fives, it's typically around um, that invasion of privacy or like wanting to be by themselves. For sixes, it kind of makes up their main motivation. And then for sevens, like I said before, they're going to bury it and act like it doesn't exist. I have so many sevens in my life and I feel like I am literally pulling teeth to try to get them to talk about anything that's hard. And mm-hmm. me being a feeler, yeah. I'm like, lay it on me. Lay it on me. I want to, I want to help, you know? Yeah. So yeah, those are the it's triads. And then go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I also have experienced some sevens in my life where it's just hard. My experience of them is that sometimes it's hard for them to actually say the thing, like the thing that they're feeling to actually say it. They may be feeling it uh, on some level, even when they're not burying it, but it's still hard to like physically say the thing. Yeah, for sure. It's so, it's so difficult. And then I feel like I'm bothering them when I'm like, just talk to me about it. (laughs) But that's because I'm a two, you know, and I feel like I'm bothering everybody. And then we all have different numbers that we're connected to when we're in stress and when we're in growth. So this is why it's important to really learn about all nine types. You know, it's normal for us to, if we get a book on the Enneagram, right, to like fast forward to our type because we want to read about it and learn about it. But we're connected to so many different types. So we have our stress number, we have our growth number, our two wings, and then our main type. So out of the nine types, we're actually connected to five of them. So like that's more than half, right? So for ones, when they're stressed, they will take on the unhealthy qualities of a four. So that can look like... um, really internalizing your emotions, focusing on your emotions, uh, kind of adopting this like, woe is me, nobody understands me, nobody gets what I'm going through type of mentality. Can I tell you what I call it? (laughs) Yeah. I I call it, I call it my emo ball. So when I, (laughs) when I feel it, when I feel like I'm super stressed out, I'm like, I really, I feel like a roly poly that like closes everything up and like I'm in my little emo ball. Yes. Yep. That, so that's the one for sure. And then when they're really healthy, you know, ones are really structured and rigid and sometimes they're like stereotypically known to not have as much fun as some of the other types because they're focused on following rules and things like that. But when they're really healthy or when they're in growth, they move to that high side of the seven. So being able to like let loose a little bit, be a little bit more go with the flow and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. so I also obviously experienced that 
quite a bit. And my partner is six wing seven. So sometimes it's like when I'm in growth and he's sort of experiencing some of his seven wing, like we can just we can just fly off somewhere together sometimes. <laughs> and we've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's been, it's been pretty cool. But okay, so we've heard a lot, a lot, a lot about the Enneagram. Um, and I'm super, super grateful to you for sharing all of this with us. I want to talk just as we close our time together a little bit why uh, about sort of the value of the Enneagram, specifically in parenting, why this is important to know um, for those of us who parent in a partnered relationship and what the value of the Enneagram is for for parenting. Yeah, so it, like I said before, it can be super beneficial to relationships. So if you are parenting in a partnered situation, then you can, first of all, understand some of your partner's motivations for how they parent, right? So, um, you know, everybody parents differently. And so if you understand the motivations behind each other's types, then that can kind of explain some of the reasoning behind parenting. So for example, if you are in a partnership with a nine, they are probably not going to want to be in charge of any of the um, discipline, right? Like they don't like conflict, they, you know, are the mediators. So they're going to try to do some mediation frequently. So that will be able to, so understanding if your partner's a nine, you'll be able to understand why they do the things that they do, as well as if you understand your own, you can, you know, understand better why you parent the way that you do and really what you need from other people in order to be an effective parent and caregiver. Really, I say the Enneagram is just all about like empathy and seeking to understand each other. Yeah, which is a beautiful gift that we can offer those that that we're in relationship with, period. I especially think about, as you were saying, that most scholars agree that your Enneagram type you have from the moment you're born. There's this beautiful unveiling that happens with our kids as they move through development of um, sort of the peeling away of layers to uncover this this beautifully crafted human and to understand the ways in which our kids operate and work and think, I think, you know, sort of simplifying it to, this is really all about empathy and being in relationship with one another and the beauty that happens in the midst of humanity as it gathers um, is, is deeply spiritual. It's connected and, and it's beautiful. And I think you've said it, you've said it well. Thank you. (laughs) So I would love to have people be connected to you. So I'd love it if you would talk to us a little bit about your coaching. Tell us where people can find you, find your work, because the the work that you do is so is so amazing and deep as as you've already heard that the depth that Ashley goes into with this Enneagram work is um, astounding and your knowledge is just beyond. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners how they can connect to you. And I hope that some of them will reach out to you directly. I know I want to have some follow-up conversation with you as well. So I would love it if you would tell us how to do that. Yeah. So you can find me at, and my services at my website, which is just Enneagram Ashton.com. 
Um, I do coaching for people who are trying to figure out their type, which is probably my most popular service. You know, tests are always a great place to start. But because the Enneagram is about motivation, sometimes it's difficult to not answer based on behaviors when you're taking a test. So mm-hmm. I do help people figure out their type. And it's more of like a, a conversation or an interview where I'm asking questions and then listening to those poor like words and phrases to get to somebody's motivation. So I do that. And then I do um, ongoing coaching too with people who are either in some sort of transition or they want to grow in a specific area of their type, or maybe they just want to learn more about how to be a better version of themselves. You can also find me on Instagram at Enneagram Ashton, and that's where I hang out most of the time. Yeah, follow her on Instagram. She's constantly offering Enneagram wisdom and all kinds of other wisdom on Instagram. So at Enneagram Ashton. I want to I wanna close with this before we do our mantra. I say this to people all the time. I feel like it may be endorsed by you. But after all this stuff that we've talked about, about mm-hmm. the Enneagram and it being, um, you know, about motivation and, and whatever, like I will, I do caution people as they are entering into some study about the Enneagram that like, your Enneagram type also isn't an excuse to be an asshole. How do you feel about that? Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, I love that. So I, I think it's important, like awareness coming into who we are and understanding who we are is beautiful. And there are also some types that get a bad rap, like eights tend to get a bad rap. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some other right. you know types that tend to get a bad rap. But bottom line, like this whole thing being about empathy, just remember like the Enneagram type not an excuse to be an asshole for sure. Yes. Love that. Love that. So true. (laughs) All right. Well, it's been awesome to be with you. And I'm again, I'm so, so, so grateful that you were able to do this with us today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved being on. Thanks for listening to the auto parent podcast. We're going to leave you with a parent mantra, something you can say to yourself or to your partner, just to know that you're not alone. Your mantra for this week is it's okay for me to be who I am. It's okay for me to be who I am. Because friends, if we don't believe that, it's going to be really hard to convince our kids. And remember this, you don't have to be an auto parent to be a good one.